Amen. Well, once again, I am uh, Paul Stiver. I'm on staff with Hope, one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. And uh, kicking off now, or not kicking off, we are in week two now of our sermon series, Made for God, Identity, Gender, and Sex. And again, there's the handout in the back if you want to know where we're going today and then where we're going uh, in future sermons. It's the eight-week series. We are in week two right now. Uh, and today we're going to have the talk. Just that's a joke. I don't. Nobody laughed. I should have done it better. I didn't. I never sell the jokes as much. Every. I hope you're sitting down because we're gonna have the talk. So uh, natural transition to crop circles. Uh, this is a picture of crop circles drawn or, or put in the ground by aliens, presumably. I wanted to talk about a little bit, but as we get going here, like lesser things or things that are signs of something or point to something greater. And so if we put crop circles up, what do those point to? Aliens, right? But actually, of course, it's been revealed that there was human beings and it was a hoax. These two dudes, uh, I think they were like math teachers. Uh, You can't trust math teachers. That's, nope, that's a joke. That is not true. I don't know if you can or not. Uh, You have to decide. Um, So, But crop circles point to aliens. Uh, Movie trailers like this one from Fast 9, point to, they aren't the real thing, but they point to the greater thing, which is the actual movie. I did just find out that Fast and Furious 10 is coming out. I know people wanted to know that. Yeah, so that's a big deal. Uh, that's a, um, that's heresy, but all right. And then bobblehead dolls. Uh, bobblehead dolls have giveaways at like sporting events, obviously not the real thing, pointing to the real player. This is Michael Jordan. And most of the time, bobblehead dolls do look nothing like the actual person, the actual player. This one actually kind of does look like Michael Jordan. It's a pretty good bobblehead doll. Um, and then, of course, pictures. This is a picture of the Grand Canyon on the wall of someone's house. And just thinking lesser to greater, you would never go to someone's house to visit their picture of the Grand Canyon. Like, oh, I just got to go see it on the wall. It's so nice. But you would go visit the Grand Canyon. And so as, where we're going today as we have the talk uh, is sex and gender from a biblical perspective, God's biblical creation as good. And you know this sermon's going to be extra holy because the word biblical is in the title twice. Uh, but also, uh, so, and uh, so, but what if, what if sex and gender are good things, but not ultimate things? What if sex and gender are good things, but not ultimate things, and they're meant to point us to something greater, to a greater reality. So let's get into it. As we get into it, though, I want to say this. A picture of a microscope up here and just, there's nothing quite like sex and talking about sex, thinking about it, that that puts us under a microscope. It feels like it puts all of our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our joys, our pains under a microscope. and, uh, And everyone is struggling. We all feel that. And that's not lost on, on myself or Brian as we uh, consider this series that this topic matters deeply to all of us. Identity, gender, sex, these things matter deeply. Uh, and our job is to ideally present the scriptures with clarity to show God's life-giving word and what that has to bear on these very personal matters. Um, that being said, we are here and available for questions, comments. Uh, if you feel like you need care in this area, you can email, Brian's email's on that handout, but it's just brian at hopecc, my email, paul at hopecc. We, we realize this topic can bring up hard things. The sermon series can bring up hard things, and we don't want you to feel like you have to face hard things alone. So just putting that out there as we get into this. Uh, 
But let's look at where we were last week. So last week, one of the slides Brian had was looking at John chapter 17. We were looking at the authority of God and his, the authority of his word and its ability to speak into our lives. And this passage from John 17 says this, verses one through three. After Jesus said this, he looked forward to heaven and prayed, or toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here's Jesus, the word of God incarnate, praying to God and saying, you granted him authority over all people. Why? Look at that verse in verse two. That he might give eternal life. Jesus' authority, and he uses his authority to be life-giving in the same way the scriptures and their authority in our lives are life-giving. That's what Brian showed us last week. Even, and perhaps especially when, the scriptures challenge our authority and our own self-rule. So God's word and God's son are meant to be life-giving. And that's what we have to have in the back of our minds as we look at God's design of sex. God's design is good. We're going to see that, but we don't always hear that. We maybe didn't hear that growing up. We didn't hear that in the church or outside the church. Maybe you heard sex is too good to wait. Maybe you heard God is a killjoy. Sex is something to fear. Sex is shameful. You shouldn't even talk about it in church. Maybe as Christians, we're known more for what we're against, sexual immorality, than what we're for covenantal marriage, a beautiful uh, design of sex, the enjoyment of sex in marriage. Or maybe you grew up in a place that worshiped purity and kind of made law and rules about purity that weren't even helpful. We're going to see today that God's design is good because God creates good things. And he has a plan and a purpose with this design. So he creates sex and gender as good. So we've got to see him first as creator. And so to see that, we'll go to Genesis 1. I'm actually just going to do verses one through three, but it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I got to keep going. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God is creator. And he speaks things into being and he sees that it's good. He's going to go forward in Genesis 1 to do a lot of that. We get light, darkness, waters of sky, waters below, land and seas, the greater light, the lesser light, plants and trees. I intended that to rhyme so it would sound cool. Fish, birds, wild animals, livestock, and then all of these things he's saying, good, good, good. And then human beings, the pinnacle of his creation, image bearers, male and females. So let's look at that. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God creates humanity in his image. What does that mean? It means that he puts a stamp on us and that he has given us dignity, personhood, and worth. We have value to the God of the universe. Every person you've ever met has equal value to the God of the universe. 
And then he desires and creates us to reflect him, to be a mirror, as it were, a representative of him. And in that, he says, be fruitful and multiply to the man and the woman. Increase the number. Why? So that they could spread his glory across the face of the earth through the image bearers that they join him in creating. So that they would show across the face of the earth his glory, the greater reality of who God is, just by existing as image bearers. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. And over this, he says, it is very good. So we're in the beginning of the Bible. That's chapter one. Let's move to chapter two. Chapter one is a broader account of creation. Chapter two is more narrow, looking at humanity. It says this in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then verse 18 here says, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the whole creation account up to this point in the Bible, all we've read is God looking at creation and saying, good, 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 very good. And now what do we see in verse 18? Not good. It is not good. Why? Why is it not good? I will make a helper suitable for him. So God, we're going to see why it's not good in a second. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. A helper here, the word literally means a help opposite him. One opposite him. So let's continue on. Verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So the man is naming these animals. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. No opposite of him was found. He's starting to feel and understand. He's naming these animals. And every time he names a new animal, he's starting to feel and understand, this isn't the one for me. This isn't my match. This isn't the suitable helper. He's starting to feel it. What is God up to? And then verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. It says this, and uh, Derek Kidner says this in his commentary, the naming of the animals, a scene which portrays the man as monarch of all he surveys, poignantly reveals him as a social being made for fellowship, not power. He will not live until he loves, giving himself away to another on his own level. So the woman is presented wholly as his partner and counterpart. Nothing is yet said of her as childbearer. She is valued for herself alone. What's the not good? Why was it not good for man to be alone? Because by himself, he couldn't reflect God fully. Why? Because he couldn't give himself away in self-giving love. He needed someone to love in self-giving love as an image bearer to reflect God. And what else we have to see is the woman is valued for who she is, not what she does and what she will do in the future. Continuing on, verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this, 
is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is where, if you know the song by Etta James, At Last, this is the, that song was inspired by this, because he says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is poetry from Adam, as the woman is brought to him by God. As we see this in verse 22, God brought her to the man. This is why, when you go to weddings, why brides walk down the aisle. This is the first marriage. So he sings and rejoices, and he finishes his work of naming. She is like me, yet different. This is good. Continuing on, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. Other translations will say leave and cleave to, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So they, he leaves and cleaves. And we get this one flesh language. One flesh means sex. It definitely means sex. But it means so much more than that. It means total oneness. Inseparable union. Another word we use for that is covenant. This covenant, this committed binding relationship that God has joined together. And it says then in verse 25, in the experience of covenant, they are both naked and they felt no shame. Feeling never exposed, but totally secure. Feeling known and delighted in. Feeling open and totally free, totally safe. They're feeling no shame in this design. Derek Hidner again says this, the union of the two in marriage is to be an exclusive, permanent, God-sealed bond. For God himself, like a father of the bride, leads the woman to the man. Fourthly, there is in God's true pattern perfect ease between them, but it is the fruit of perfect love which has no alloy of greed, distrust, or dishonor. That's that no shame. And then just peeking ahead a little bit, he says it was understandably an immediate casualty of the fall. So what we've got to see from the beginning of the Bible is in God's design, sex takes place in a God-created covenantal union, a committed union between male and female. And in the design, in its goodness, it was meant to be without shame, good and beautiful. Tim Keller says this, marriage is a covenant, one that creates a place of security for vulnerability. That's one of the strengths, one of the beauties of covenant, is I know you're not going anywhere. Security for vulnerability. But though covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for covenant. The covenant will grow stale unless we continually revisit and reenact it. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage, the physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all other areas, economic, legal, personal, psychological, created by the marriage covenant. Sex renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant. So in God's design, this is what sex is for. It's meant to be good. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to revitalize and renew the marriage covenant. But it, it takes place in the space of covenant so that there is security for vulnerability. So that there's safety to be committed to one another without fear. 
So it's not absurd purity culture that the Bible teaches, nor sexual liberation, but sex as a good gift meant to reinforce inseparable union. But that's not what we tend to hear on sex. What we tend to hear on sex, and and I, I know this because I watch TV, and man, this is like every sitcom, every show, you hear these things. Sex is a biological impulse, an appetite. We have needs. Sex is solely for pleasure. It can be covenant commitment free because as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And this was one I heard or felt, I felt this growing up outside when I was outside the church. I remember feeling this. To be sexually active is to be truly living. I'm not a whole person until I'm sexually active. The irony being, I was talking to someone this week that grew up in the church and they said, I felt the same way in the church. The irony being that this can't, this can't be true. Science even disproves that sex is just solely for pleasure, covenant, commitment-free, because we release oxytocin, a chemical that bonds when sex takes place. There's something God's trying to do, but is God's design good? What does Jesus say? Let's look at Matthew 19. Jesus gets confronted by the Pharisees, and they're trying to get him to say some things on divorce so they can trap him. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Here's Jesus' response. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Real quick, we are not going to get into the conversation of divorce. Actually, Pastor Steve from Hope Downtown has an excellent sermon on divorce. If you want to look that up, it'll be on our resources page. So we're not going to talk about that, but here's what we got to see from Jesus. Jesus is actually affirming things. He's showing us some things about what we just read in Genesis 2. First, he's showing us that Jesus himself affirms the authority of Scripture. Because how does he answer? He quotes the Scripture. So he affirms the authority of Scripture. He affirms God's good design for marriage. He affirms the goodness of the creation, the purpose of marriage, and God's involvement in it. Not only that, he affirms God's involvement in individual marriages. Therefore, verse 6, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Finally, he reinforces and affirms the goodness of sexual differentiation, namely male and female, and that becoming one flesh. And the reason he does this, many reasons, but one of the reasons he does this is that God has a purpose. Jesus knows that God has a purpose for sex and and gender. And so he puts that in here because God set it up this way. So what if, again, God intends for gender and sex to point us to something greater? What if our view of sex is, on the one hand, too big and that we see it so often as ultimate, and on the other hand, too small and that we don't realize that it's meant to point to something greater? And we actually see this pattern quite a bit in the Bible, more than movie trailers and bobblehead dolls. We see this in the Bible. We already saw it. Image bearers, human beings, are meant to point to the greater reality of their creator. Food and drink themselves are good things meant to point to 
the goodness of the Creator and His giving away of good things. Communion is a representation. Bread and juice that represent Christ giving His body and shedding His blood for us on the cross, a lesser to a greater, and finally, marriage itself meant to point us to Christ and the church, which we'll look at a little bit. So then sex and gender are also meant to point us to something greater. They're not in and of themselves an end. Marriage is not in and of itself an end. They're meant to point us to something greater, to union with Jesus. And so let's look at that now with the classic marriage chapter, Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. I'm not going to talk a ton about marriage because we've got to see the bigger thing. Starting in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. What's the mystery, Paul? He's saying marriage isn't about marriage at all. It's about Christ and the church. So in God's design of sex and gender, it's pointing to something greater. It's about Jesus. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul's saying that whole point of that first marriage was to show us the second marriage, that in God's design of sex, in covenantal union, it's pointing us to the union we have in Christ, all of us, as members of his body. As his bride, the church. Christ is the greater Adam who doesn't just give a rib, but gives his life to have his bride. And he sings over us. And so now that we belong to Christ, we actually can answer the it is not good for man to be alone. And the solution isn't marriage. The solution is anywhere, any of us, now that we're in Christ and have experienced his self-giving love, are now actually capable, because we're united with him, of showing self-giving love to others. That can take place within a marriage, but it's not limited to marriage. That can take place without sex. We can show Christ's self-giving love because it is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate. Christ uniting himself to us and dying for us is ultimate. And now we get to show it. This, If you're not with me yet, we see it in Revelation again. The church being 
spoken of as a bride. I saw the holy city here at Revelation 21, 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Who's the husband? It's Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. We are presented, pictured as a bride walking down the aisle to King Jesus to show that it was all about this union, all about dwelling together in eternal covenantal bliss, security yet vulnerability, no shame, inseparable oneness with our Savior. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, a long quote here. He says, in that resurrection morning, when the Son of Righteousness, Jesus, shall appear in the heavens, shining in all his brightness and glory, he will come forth as a bridegroom. He shall come in the glory of his Father with all his holy angels. That will be a joyful meeting of this glorious bridegroom and bride indeed. Then the bridegroom will appear in all his glory without any veil, and then the saints shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father and at the right hand of their Redeemer. Then will come the time when Christ will sweetly invite his spouse, us, his bride, the church, to enter in with him into the palace of his glory, which he had been preparing for her from the foundation of the world. And shall, as it were, take her by the hand and lead her, again, us, the church, in with him. And this glorious bridegroom and bride shall, with all their shining ornaments, ascend up together into the heaven of heaven, the whole multitude of glorious angels waiting upon them, and this son and daughter of God shall, in their united glory and joy, present themselves together before the Father when Christ shall say, Here am I and the children which thou hast given me. And they both shall, in that relation and union together, receive the Father's blessing and shall thenceforward rejoice together in consummate, uninterrupted, immutable, and everlasting glory in the love and embraces of each other and joint enjoyment of the love of the Father. That is what sex is ultimately pointing to. Something greater. Joy, a consummate, uninterrupted, immutable, everlasting union of joy in the love and embraces of one another and the joint enjoyment of the love of the Father. So we saw God's design, God's purpose then for the design is that sex would point us to a greater covenantal union, a deeper eternal intimacy, a greater display and experience of God's glory, namely Jesus and his life-giving relationship with us, his followers, his bride, the church. So in God's design, sex is a good thing, like many good things, that points us to the good thing. It is not the good thing. Sex nor marriage are not capable of saving our souls. Sex and its goodness was meant to be an echo of the resounding voice of God that says to us, I love you and I desire you. And that voice is loudest at the cross of Christ where God is showing us what he really thinks of us. I want you to be mine in oneness forever.
Then we have to ask, why isn't it good? Why, when we look around, are things so messy? Why do we have so much baggage? Why are we all, to use the term, sexually broken? And the answer is because we all have made the exchange of God for creation. We've all made the exchange of the, we've, we've grabbed for the lesser reality over and against the greater reality. We actually see that in the story. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 10, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will have autonomy. Continuing on, verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is the beginning of our experience. They sin. They choose sin. They reject God for creation. They want to be God. And the result is fear, shame, nakedness, exposure. Intimacy is impacted. Separation begins. No longer now will the man reflect and the woman reflect God's self-giving love as they approach each other. Now they'll fight and try to rule over each other. Self-giving love will no longer be reflected. Union is now disrupted. Ed Welch, in his book, Shame Interrupted, says it this way. In the beginning, the man and the woman were the offspring of the king. As royalty, they were clothed in honor, even though they had no clothes. They were identified with the king who was God himself. They belonged to him. His reputation was their reputation. But in that simple act of disobeying God and eating the fruit, everything changed. When they chose what the king forbade, they were opting out of the royal line. They cut their association with the creator and chose to identify with the creature who was both animal and the anti-God, a serpent and Satan himself. So they reject God for the lesser reality. The word for this in the church is idolatry. That we reject the creator and choose the created. This is a sin problem and it is a worship problem. We choose to worship ourselves. Another, a lot of quotes today, I'm sorry for that, but J.I. Packer says it this way then. Sin is playing God and as a means to this, refusing to allow the creator to be God as far as you are concerned, living not for him, but for yourself, loving and serving and pleasing yourself without reference to the creator, trying to be as far as possible, independent of him, taking yourself out of his hands, holding him at arm's length, keeping the reins of your life in your own hands, acting if, as if you and your pleasure were the end to which all things else, God included, must be made to function as a means. That is the attitude in which sin essentially consists. 
This is why things are so messed up when we look at sex and gender and sexuality, because we're keeping God at arm's length, making things function as a means to our own pleasure. We set ourselves up as king and cut the goodness of God out of the picture. He continues, sin is exalting oneself against the creator, withholding homage due to him and putting yourself in his place as the ultimate standard of reference in all life's decisions. Augustine analyzed sin as pride, the mad passion to be superior even to God and as a state of being bent away from God into a state of self-absorption. I think whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you are a believer or not, this resonates with us. We see this in our lives, wanting God out of the picture, which leads us to worship lesser things, which leads us to hurt and be hurt. This is idolatry. This is us bowing to bobblehead dolls, as it were. And this is what leads to the brokenness that we see. Brian, we'll get into that more next week. This is just a teaser of that. But then we've got to see who is Jesus to the sexually broken, which is every one of us. Who is he? Is there somewhere we can go for security yet vulnerability? And this is what is one of the most compelling things about Jesus's ministry. When he's dealing with religious people, he confronts them. When he's dealing with sinners like us, he's gentle and compassionate. He will still confront, but tenderly. You think of the woman caught in adultery or the prostitute in Luke 7 that comes to the dinner with Simon and is washing his feet with her her tears and her hair. And he says to her, your sins, though many, are forgiven. He shows gentleness. One of the people he shows tenderness to, compassion to, is the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. So we're going to look at this. We've got to see Jesus in this. And just before we get into this, Jesus breaks some cultural barriers here. He's a rabbi talking to a woman, first of all, but he's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. He's breaking some of the social categories of the time. It says here in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, it's important for us to know one thing. Because it is noon, this is not actually a typical time to draw water in this culture. The Samaritan woman comes alone at noon because, and we'll see later, she was a moral outcast, as one commentary said. She's isolated. She's covered in shame. So she goes in shame at a time when no one else would be there. But guess who's there? Jesus is there. And he does something here. He asks her to draw water for him, something his disciples would normally do. So not only is he breaking barriers by talking to her, he's breaking barriers by asking her to do something for him. Continuing on verse 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. She knows it. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift, actually, real quick, they don't drink out of their dishes. So that's what that means. He would never, he's asking to drink out of her dish. 
even though they would never do that. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? She's shocked. But she's, we can see in verse, 10, verse 9, sorry, and verse 11, that she's thinking about the lesser reality. She's thinking about water. And he's saying, I've got living water. He's compelling her to see the gift of God. He's wanting her to see the gift of God, eternal life in the spirit that only he can give. He's trying to show her the greatest, her greatest need and also the greater reality. Continuing on, verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Stop there for a second. She's still thinking about the lesser realities. I just, I, then I won't have to come back and draw this water. So he's going to do something. He's going to get to her heart. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Jesus is not an idiot. He knows she has no husband. But he calls this. He says this to her. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. What did Jesus just do here? He actually exposed her. He said, I see you for who you are. I know. And actually then he, he does it so gently and actually ends with commending her for telling the truth about who she is. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. She's starting to pick up on Jesus now. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. He's starting to tell her more than anyone's heard to this point in John's gospel. But he's also telling, he's addressing the worship issue. He's addressing the idolatry issue. He's addressing her understanding of the lesser reality and trying to show her the greater reality. Let's continue on. Verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Right there in verse 25, she tests him in faith. I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You see what Jesus just did? He just revealed himself to her. He just showed her who he is. He's showing her, he's telling her, I'm the greater husband who will not abandon you, 
but will actually unite myself to you, taking your shame, die for you, so that your shame can be turned to glory, your isolation can be turned to security. I will cover you. And then look what it says. We continue on verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They can't put him in their categories. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. She leaves her old water jar because she's encountered the greater reality. She's seen Jesus for who he is. She's encountered the living water. This can be true of us when we see God's design and the greater reality it points to. Jesus, union with him, life-giving ways. Because here's the reality. Jesus knows what's under the microscope of our hearts. He knows the mess in our lives. And despite seeing it, he was glad to die for it. He says, I see who you are. Here's who I am. Your idols say, your idols say to you, change to have me. I say, I have you, and now I'll change you. Jesus is the only Savior who actually knows the worst in us and sees it as compelling. He's drawn nearer when he sees it. And he's the only Savior who desires to be so intimately connected to us as to redeem all of us. So we can be covered by Christ, clothed by Christ, accepted in Christ, cleansed by Christ, which gives us a new self-understanding, a new identity as his people that puts sex, gender, identity, marriage in its place because of what Jesus is to the sexually broken, because he is the morally pure one who was cast out for moral outcasts like us. To the sexually broken who is every one of us, Jesus is the lifter of heads, the forgiver, the restorer, the healer, the friend who always sticks by our side, who doesn't make demands on us, but instead imparts life to us. He's the cleanser. He's the one who loves us out of our shame. He's the one who heals our hurts, of whom it is said, a bruised reed he will not break. And we are all bruised reeds, wounded by the pain of our own choices and life itself. Jesus is the one who shows compassion, who seeks us out, who draws us near, who never says to us, not good enough, but here I am. Jesus is the one who can truly heal and is willing to heal. He's the one who conquered sin and death and the devil. He's the one who rose. He's the one who sends the Spirit personal power for real change in our lives because he delights in making bad things new, broken things better, ugly things beautiful, shameful things glorious. He's the clean who died for the unclean, the sinless for the sinful, the truly loving for the utterly unlovely, the whole one for fragmented frauds like us the beautiful for the broken, the creator for the destroyers, the giver dying for the takers, the true worshiper dying for idolaters, in fact, the son of God dying for his creation. And because he lives, we know, and as we move on in this series, we know 
There's no sin, no situation, no person that he isn't willing and capable of transforming. Nothing is beyond the reach of his grace and power. And only Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our hearts' desperate longing for intimacy, security, love, and significance. He is the one where we can be secure yet vulnerable. He is the unique Savior for sinners, and he is all that and more for those who trust him. As we close, Jesus is the greater reality. He's what this is all about. And today could be the day, first time that you actually say that's true. I want in on that. I need that Savior. I'm tired of living my own way. You can believe the gospel today. For those of us who have believed it, we can receive it afresh. And as we move on in this series, as we continue on, will you let God's good design And the greater reality it points to, our union with Jesus, reframe the way you think about sex and gender. We're going to move to a time of communion. Here at Hope, we practice open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you would be someone who said yes to Jesus, who's trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Communion, again, is a lesser thing that points us to a greater reality. The bread and the juice pointing us to Christ's body and blood, his body being broken, his blood being shed for us on the cross. During communion, you can take time to reflect. Think about all those lesser realities that you and I cling to. And think about how Jesus is the greater reality, better than anything else we could ever ask or imagine. We're going to move to a time of communion. I'm going to pray, and the worship team's going to come up and play a couple more songs. Feel free at any time to take communion, stand up, and sing. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are good and you make good things. And one of those good things is sex. One of those good things is gender. But those things were meant to point us to something greater, namely your son and his union with us, United with us, he dies for us. United with us, he rises. And in him then we are clothed. He takes away our shame. He gives us security and vulnerability that we know that your grace says you will never leave us or forsake us. God, we praise you for that. And we pray that that would change the way we think about ourselves and about the lesser realities in this world, the good things in this world. We pray that you would be with us now as we continue on in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.